Section two of the Life of God and the Soul of Man by Henry Scougal. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jen Raimundo. Section two. That sincere and devout affection wherewith his blessed soul did constantly burn towards his heavenly Father did express itself in an entire resignation to his will. It was his very meat to do the will and finish the work of him that sent him. This was the exercise of his childhood and the constant employment of his riper age. He spared no traveller pains while he was about his father's business, but took such infinite content and satisfaction in the performance of it, that when, being faint and weary with his journey, he rested himself on Jacob's well, and entreated water of the Samaritan woman. The success of his conference with her, and the accession that was made to the kingdom of God, filled his mind with such delight as seemed to have redounded to his very body, refreshing his spirits, and making him forget the thirst whereof he complained before, and refuse the meat which he had sent his disciples to buy. Nor was he less patient and submissive in suffering the will of God than diligent in the doing of it. He endured the sharpest afflictions and extremest miseries that ever were inflicted on any mortal, without repining thought or discontented word. For though he was far from a stupid insensibility, or a fantastic or stoical obstinacy, and had as quick a sense of pain as other men, and the deepest apprehension of what he was about to suffer in his soul, as his bloody sweat and the sore amazement and sorrow which he professed do abundantly declare, yet did he entirely submit to that severe disposition of providence, and willingly acquiesced in it. And he prayed to God, that, if it were possible, or as one of the evangelists hath it, if he were willing, that cup might be removed. Yet he gently added, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Of what strange importance are the expressions, John 12, verse 27, where he first acknowledgeth the anguish of his spirit, Now is my soul troubled, which would seem to produce a kind of demure, and what shall I say? And then he goes on to deprecate his sufferings, Father, save me from this hour, which he had no sooner uttered, but he doth as it were, on second thoughts, recall it in these words, but for this cause came I into the world, and concludes, Father, glorify thy name. Now we must not look on this as any levity, or blamable weakness in the blessed Jesus. He knew all along what he was to suffer, and did most resolutely undergo it. But it shows us the inconceivable weight and pressure that he was to bear, which, being so afflicting and contrary to nature, he could not think of without terror. Yet, considering the will of God and the glory which was to redound from him thence, he was not only content, but desirous to suffer it. Another instance of his love to God was his delight in conversing with him by prayer, which made him frequently retire himself from the world, and, with the greatest devotion and pleasure, spend whole nights in that heavenly exercise, though he had not sins to confess, and but few secular interests to pray for, which, alas, are almost the only things that are wont to drive us to our devotions. Nay, we may say his whole life was a kind of prayer, a constant course of communion with God, if the sacrifice was not always offering, yet was the fire still kept alive, nor was ever the blessed Jesus surprised with that dullness or tepidity of spirit which we must many times wrestle with before we can be fit for the exercise of devotion. In the second place, I should speak of his love and charity toward all men, but he who would express it must transcribe the history of the gospel and comment upon it, for scarce anything is recorded to have been done or spoken by him which was not designed for the good and advantage of some one or other. All his miraculous works were instances of his goodness as well as his power, and they benefited those on whom they wrought, as well as they amazed the beholders. His charity was not confined to his kindred or relations, nor was all his kindness swallowed up in the endearment of that peculiar friendship which he carried toward his beloved disciple. But every one was his friend who obeyed his holy commands, 
John chapter 15, verse 14, and whosoever did the will of his father, the same was to him as his brother, sister, and mother. Never was any unwelcome to him who came with an honest intention, nor did he deny any request which tended to the good of those that asked it, so that what was spoken of that Roman emperor, who, for his goodness, was called the darling of mankind, was really performed by him, that never any departed from him with a heavy countenance, except that rich youth, Mark 10, who was sorry to hear that the kingdom of heaven stood at so high a rate, and that he could not save his soul and his money, too. And certainly it troubled our Saviour, to see that when a price was in his hand to get wisdom, yet he had no heart to it. The ingenuity that appeared in his first address had already procured some kindness for him, for it is said, And Jesus beholding him loved him. But must he, for his sake, cut out a new way to heaven, and alter the nature of things, which make it impossible that a covetous man should be happy? And what shall I speak of his meekness, who could encounter the monstrous ingratitude and dissimulation of that miscreant who betrayed him in no harsher term than these? Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? What farther evidence could we desire of his fervent and unbounded charity than that he willingly laid down his life even for his most bitter enemies, and mingling his prayer with his blood, besought the Father that his death might not be laid to their charge, but might become the means of eternal life to those very persons who procured it? The third branch of the divine life is purity, which, as I said, consists in a neglect of worldly enjoyments and accommodations, and a resolute enduring of all such troubles as we meet with in doing our duty. Now, surely, if ever any person was wholly dead to all the pleasure of the natural life, it was the blessed Jesus, who seldom tasted them but when they came in his way, but never stepped out of his road to seek them. Though he allowed others the comforts of wedlock, and honoured marriage with his presence, yet he chose the severity of a virgin life, and never knew the nuptial bed. And though at the same time he supplied the lack of wine with a miracle, yet he would not work a miracle to relieve his own hunger in the wilderness. So gracious and divine was the temper of his soul, that he allowed others such lawful gratifications as he thought good to abstain from, and supplied not only their more extreme and pressing necessities, but also their smaller and less considerable wants. We hear many times of our Saviour's sighs, groans, and tears, but never that he laughed, and but once that he rejoiced in spirit. So through his whole life he exactly answered that character given of him by the prophet of old, that he was a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. Nor were the troubles and disaccommodations of his life other than matters of choice, for never did there appear on the stage of the world any one with greater advantage to have raised himself to the highest secular felicity. He who could bring together such a prodigious number of fishes into his disciples' nets, and, at another time, receive that tribute from a fish which he was to pay to the temple, might have easily made himself the richest person in the world. Nay, without money he could have maintained an army powerful enough to have jostled Caesar out of his throne, having more than once fed several thousand with a few loaves and small fishes. But, to show what little esteem he had for all the enjoyments of this world, he chose to live in so poor and mean a condition that, though the foxes had holes and the birds of the air had nests, yet he who was lord and heir of all things had nowhere to lay his head. He did not frequent the courts of princes, nor affect the acquaintance or converse of great ones, but, being reputed the son of a carpenter, he had fishermen and such other poor people for his companions, and lived at such a rate as suited the meanness of that condition. And thus I am brought unawares to speak of his humility, the last branch of the divine life, wherein he was a most eminent pattern to us, so that we might learn from him to be meek and lowly in heart. I shall not now speak of that infinite condescension of the eternal Son of God in taking our nature upon himself, but only reflect on our Saviour's lowly and humble deportment while he was in the world. 
he had none of those sins and imperfections which may justly humble the best of men but he was so entirely swallowed up with a deep sense of the infinite perfections of god that he appeared as nothing in his own eyes i mean so far as he was a creature he considered those eminent perfections which shined in his blessed soul not as his own but the gifts of god and therefore he assumed nothing to himself for them but with the most profound humility renounced all pretenses to them hence he refused that ordinary compilation of good master when addressed to his human nature by one whom it seems was ignorant of his divinity why callest thou me good there is none good but god only it is as if he had said the goodness of any creature and such only you take me to be is not worthy to be named or taken notice of it is god alone who is originally and essentially good he never made use of his miraculous power for vanity or ostentation he would not gratify the curiosity of the jews with a sign from heaven some prodigious appearance in the air nor would he follow the advice of his countrymen and kindred who would have had all his great works performed in the eyes of the world in order to gain greater fame but when his charity had prompted him to the relief of the miserable his humility made him many times conceal the miracle and when the glory of god and the design for which he came into the world required the publication of them he ascribed the honour of all to his father telling them that of himself he was able to do nothing i cannot insist on all the instances of humility in his deportment towards men his withdrawing himself when they would have made him a king his subjection not only to his blessed mother but to her husband during his younger years and his submission to all the indignities and affronts which his rude and malicious enemies put upon him the history of his holy life recorded by those who conversed with him is full of such passages as these and indeed the serious and attentive study of it is the best way to get the right measures of humility and all the other parts of religion which i have been endeavouring to describe but now that i may lessen your trouble of reading a long letter by making some pauses in it let me here join a prayer that might be proper when one who had formerly entertained some false notions of religion begins to discover what true religion is infinite and eternal majesty author and fountain of being and blessedness how little do we poor sinful creatures know of thee or the way to serve and please thee we talk of religion and pretend unto it but alas how few there are who know and consider what it means how easily we mistake the affections of our nature and the issues of self-love for those divine graces which alone can render us acceptable in thy sight it may justly grieve me to consider that i should have wandered so long and contented myself so often with vain shadows and false images of piety and religion yet i cannot but acknowledge and adore thy goodness who hast been pleased in some measure to open my eyes and let me see what it is at which i ought to aim i rejoice to consider what mighty improvements my nature is capable of and what a divine temper of spirit shines in those whom thou art pleased to choose and cause to approach unto thee blessed be thine infinite mercy who sent thine own son to dwell among men and to instruct them by his example as well as his laws giving them a perfect pattern of what they ought to be oh that the holy life of the blessed jesus may be always in my thoughts and before my eyes till i receive a deep sense and impression of those excellent graces that shone so eminently in him and let me never cease my endeavours until that new and divine nature prevails in my soul and until christ is formed within me and now my dear friend having discovered the nature of true religion before i proceed any further i will not perhaps be unfit to fix our meditations a little on the excellency and advantages of it so that we may be excited to a more vigorous and diligent prosecution of those methods whereby we may attain so great a felicity but alas what words shall we find to express that inward satisfaction those hidden pleasures which can never be rightly understood except by those holy souls who feel them 
A stranger intermeddleth not with their joy. Proverbs 14.10 Holiness is the right temper, the vigorous and healthful constitution of the soul. Its faculties had formerly been enfeebled and disordered so that they could not exercise their natural functions. It had wearied itself with endless tossings and rollings, and was never able to find any rest. Now, that distemper being removed, it feels itself well. There is a due harmony in its faculties, and a sprightly vigor possesses every part. The understanding can discern what is good, and the will can cleave unto it. The affections are not tied to the motions of sense and the influence of external objects, but they are stirred by more divine impressions and touched by a sense of visible things. Let us descend, if you please, into a nearer and more particular view of religion in those several branches of it which were named before. Let us consider that love and affection wherewith holy souls are united to God, so that we may see what excellency and felicity is involved in it. Love is that powerful and prevalent passion by which all the faculties and inclinations of the soul are determined, and on which both its perfection and happiness depend. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. He who loves mean and sordid things thereby becomes base and vale. But a noble and well-placed affection advances and improves the spirit into a conformity with the perfections which it loves. The images of these frequently present themselves into the mind, and, by a secret force and energy, insinuate into the very constitution of the soul, and mould and fashion it into their own likeness. Hence we may see how easily lovers or friends slide into the imitation of the persons whom they affect, and how, even before they are aware, they begin to resemble them, not only in the more considerable instances of their deportment, but also in their voice and gesture, and that which we call their mien and air. And certainly, we would as well transcribe the virtues and inward beauties of the soul, if they were the object and motive of our love. But now, as all the creatures we converse with have their mixture and alloy, we are always in danger of being sullied and corrupted by placing our affections on them, passion easily blinds our eyes so that we first approve and then imitate the things that are blamable in them the true way to improve and ennoble our souls is by fixing our love on the divine perfections so that we may have them always before us and derive an impression of them on ourselves then beholding with open face as in a glass the glory of the lord we may be changed into the same image from glory to glory he who, with a generous and holy ambition, has raised his eyes towards that uncreated beauty and goodness, and fixed his affections there, is of quite another spirit, of a more excellent and heroic temper than the rest of the world, and cannot but infinitely disdain all mean and unworthy things, and will not entertain any low or base thoughts which might disparage his high and noble pretensions. Love is the greatest and most excellent thing we are masters of, and therefore it is folly and baseness to bestow it unworthily. It is indeed the only thing we can call our own. Other things may be taken from us by violence, but none can ravish our love. If anything else is counted as ours, by giving our love we give all, so far as we make over our hearts and wills, by which we possess our other enjoyments. It is not possible to refuse him anything to whom, by love, we have given ourselves. Nay, since it is the privilege of gifts to receive their value from the mind of the giver, and not to be measured by the event, but by the desire, he who loves may, in some sense, be said not only to bestow all that he has, but all things else which may make the beloved person happy, since he heartily wishes them, and would readily give them, if they were in his power. It is in this sense that one man could say that divine love does, in a manner, give God unto himself by the complacency it takes in the happiness and perfection of his nature. But though this may seem too strained an expression, certainly love is the most worthy present we can offer unto God and it is extremely debased when we bestow it in another way. When this affection is misplaced, 
it often vents itself in such expressions as point at its genuine and proper object and insinuate where it ought to be placed the flattering and blasphemous terms of adoration wherein men sometimes express their passion are the language of that affection which was made and designed for god just as he who is accustomed to speaking to some great person perhaps unawares accosts another with those titles he was wont to give him but certainly that passion which accounts its object to be deity ought to be bestowed on him who really is so those unlimited submissions which would debase the soul if directed to any other person will exalt and ennoble it when placed here those chains and cords of love are infinitely more glorious than liberty itself this slaver is more noble than all the empires in the world again as divine love advances and elevates the soul so it is that alone which can make it happy the highest and most ravishing pleasures the most solid and substantial delights that human nature is capable of are those which arise from the endearments of a well-placed and successful affection that which embitters love and makes it ordinarily a very troublesome and hurtful passion is placing it on those who do not have worth enough to deserve it or affection and gratitude to requite it or whose absence may deprive us of the pleasure of their company or their miseries occasion our trouble to all these evils they are exposed whose chief and supreme affection is placed on creatures like themselves but the love of god delivers us from them all first i say love must be miserable and full of trouble and disquiet when there is not enough worth and excellency in the object to answer the vastness of its capacity so eager and violent a passion cannot but fret and torment the spirit where it does not find something to satisfy its cravings and indeed so large and unbounded is its nature that it must be extremely pinched and straitened when confined to any creature nothing below an infinite good can afford it room to stretch itself and exert its vigour and capacity what is a little skin-deep beauty or some small degree of goodness to match or satisfy a passion which was made for god designed to embrace an infinite good no wonder lovers hardly allow any rival and do not desire that others should approve their passion by imitating it they know the scantiness and narrowness of the good which they love that it cannot suffice too being in effect too little for one hence love which is as strong as death occasions jealousy which is as cruel as the grave the coals whereof are coals of fire which have a most violent flame but divine love has no mixture of this gall once the soul is fixed on that supreme and all-sufficient good it finds so much perfection and goodness as not only answers and satisfies its affection but masters and overpowers it too it finds all its love to be too faint and languid for such a noble object and is only sorry that it can command no more it wishes for the flames of a seraph and longs for the time when it shall be wholly melted and dissolved into love and because it can do so little itself it desires the assistance of the whole creation so that angels and men would concur with it in the admiration and love of those infinite perfections again love is accompanied with trouble when it misses a suitable return of affection love is the most valuable thing we can bestow and by giving it we do in effect give all that we have and therefore it must be afflicting to find so great a gift despised and that the present which one has made of his whole heart cannot prevail to obtain any return perfect love is a kind of self-dereliction a wandering out of ourselves it is a kind of voluntary death wherein the lover dies to himself and all his own interests not thinking of them nor caring for them any more and minding nothing but how he may please and gratify the party whom he loves thus he is quite undone unless he meets with reciprocal affection he neglects himself and the other has no regard to him but if he is beloved he is revived as it were and lives in the soul and care of the person whom he loves and now he begins to mind his own concerns not so much because they are his as because the beloved is pleased to own an interest in them 
he becomes dear unto himself because he is so unto another but why should i enlarge on so known a matter nothing can be more clear than that the happiness of love depends on the return it meets with and herein the divine lover has unspeakably the advantage having placed his affection on him whose nature is love whose goodness is as infinite as his being whose mercy prevented us when we were his enemies and therefore cannot choose but to embrace us when we have become his friends it is utterly impossible that god should deny his love to a soul wholly devoted to him and which desires nothing so much as to serve and please him he cannot disdain his own image nor the heart in which it is engraven love is all the tribute which we can pay him and it is a sacrifice that he will not despise another thing which disturbs the pleasure of love and renders it a miserable and unquiet passion is absence and separation from those we love it is not without a sensible affliction that friends do part though for some little time it is sad to be deprived of that society which is so delightful our life becomes tedious being spent in an impatient expectation of the happy hour wherein we may meet again but if death has made the separation as some time or other it must this occasions a grief scarcely to be paralleled by all the misfortunes of human life and wherein we pay dearly enough for the comforts of our friendship but oh how happy are those who have placed their love upon him who can never be absent from them they need but open their eyes and they shall everywhere behold the traces of his presence and glory and converse with him whom their soul loves and this makes the darkest prison or the wildest desert not only supportable but delightful to them a lover is miserable if the person whom he loves is so they who have made an exchange of hearts by love thereby get an interest in one another's happiness and misery and this makes love a troublesome passion when placed on earth the most fortunate person has enough grief to mar the tranquillity of his friend and it is hard to hold out when we are attacked on all hands and suffer not only in our own person but in another's but if god were the object of our love we would share in an infinite happiness without any mixture of possibility of diminution we would rejoice to behold the glory of god and receive comfort and pleasure from all the praises wherewith men and angels extol him it would delight us beyond all expression to consider that the beloved of our souls is infinitely happy in himself and that all his enemies cannot shake or unsettle his throne our god is in the heavens and doth whatsoever he pleaseth behold on what sure foundations his happiness is built whose soul is possessed with divine love whose will is transformed into the will of god and whose greatest desire is that his maker should be pleased oh the peace the rest and the satisfaction that attends such a temper of mind what an infinite pleasure it must be as it were to lose ourselves in him and being swallowed up in the overcoming sense of his goodness to offer ourselves a living sacrifice always ascending unto him in flames of love never does a soul know what solid joy and substantial pleasure are till once being weary of itself it renounces all property gives itself up to the author of its being feels itself become a hallowed and devoted thing and can say from an inward sense and feeling my beloved is mine i count all his interests my own and i am his i am content to be anything for him and do not care for anything for myself but that i may serve him a person moulded into this temper would find pleasure in all the dispensations of providence temporal enjoyments would have another relish when he would taste the divine goodness in them and consider them as tokens of love sent by his dearest lord and master and chastisements though they are not joyous but grievous would hereby lose their sting the rod as well as the staff would comfort him he would snatch a kiss from the hand that was smiting him and would gather sweetness from that severity nay he would rejoice that though god did not do the will of such a worthless and foolish creature as himself yet he did his own will and accomplished his own designs which are infinitely more holy and wise 
The exercises of religion, which to others are insipid and tedious, yield the highest pleasure and delight to souls possessed with divine love. They rejoice when they are called to go up to the house of the Lord, so that they may see his power and his glory, as they have formerly seen it in his sanctuary. They never think themselves so happy as when, having retired from the world, and gotten free from the noise and hurry of affairs, and silenced all their clamorous passions, those troublesome guests within, they have placed themselves in the presence of God, and entertained fellowship and communion with him. They delight to adore his perfection, recount his favors, declare their affection for him, and tell him a thousand times that they love him, to lay out their troubles or wants before him, and unburden their hearts in his bosom. Repentance itself is a delightful exercise when it flows from the principle of love. There is a secret sweetness which accompanies those tears of remorse, those meltings and relentings of a soul returning unto God, and lamenting its former unkindness. The severities of a holy life, and that constant watch which we are obliged to keep over our hearts and ways, are very troublesome to those who are overruled and acted by an external law, and have no law in their minds inclining them to the performance of their duty. But where divine love possesses the soul, it stands as a sentinel to keep out everything that may offend the beloved, and disdainfully repulses those temptations which assault it. It complies cheerfully not only with explicit commands, but with the most secret notices of the beloved's pleasure, and is ingenious in discovering what will be most grateful and acceptable unto him. It makes mortification and self-denial change their harsh and dreadful names, and become easy, sweet, and delightful things. But I find this part of my letter swells bigger than I had designed. Indeed, who would not be tempted to dwell on so pleasant a theme? I shall endeavor to compensate for it by brevity in the other points. End of section 2 Recording by Jen Raimundo.